Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about um, what I kind of think about as like sidecar data. Um, Things that kind of data that you need to often ship with your app or provide to your app um, that supports its function, but isn't necessarily like the main content of the app. And what's interesting about this, and we have a couple of recent things that both uh, you and I have been working through with this, Marco, where there's lots and lots of different ways that you can actually package up data like this to include it in your app. You can you know, include it all the way from the extreme of like including it in code to uh, shipping, you know, configuration files or shipping a, da- a database with it, preloading like a core data database. You can download it from the internet as, you know, JSON or plist. You can download it from the internet as a database file. Like you can bundle it with, I think Apple even has a distribution system where you can like add assets that are downloaded on demand like there is a tremendous variety of things that you can do with this i forgot about that entire system (laughs) i think it's primarily used for games i think like i think mostly it's used for situations like that but anyway we'll get into why you might want to use that but it's a situation that i think happens often and there's all these weird trade-offs that you have with speed performance first run experience um time and downloading but it's happens more often than you than you will and i think this this first came to mind i think is something that is probably worth you explaining for how you implemented um instant search in overcast the most latest latest update which i think was a really clever system um and approach to taking sort of solving this part this kind of a problem yeah sure so and i went into it in detail on atp so i won't go into too far detail here but basically uh overcast has a new instant search feature which downloads about once a week, it downloads a search index from my servers and stores it locally. And then when you perform a search, it first hits that before it gets the results back from the server. And then it puts the server results below those results. So you can start typing, you can immediately get results from that local index while you're waiting for the network request to the server for the other results. And I faced a, a, you know, many of these you know, decisions and, and trade-offs with this because like, one thing I considered was you know, obviously, it has to be very small. Like the, the, the index can't be like 100 megs. That's a bit much to force people to download in the background once a week without even them knowing about it or without asking them or without providing any controls for it. Um, and it didn't seem like an important enough feature to have like a preference to turn it off or have it off by default or anything like that. Um, but uh, so, I, you know, I had, the file small. It's, all, it's about three and a half megs right now. And, uh, and I, I said once a week downloads. But I also I thought like should I bundle one with the app like should should I have like in the app bundle your first search index and then whenever the app gets a chance it downloads you know whatever's current from the internet and I thought that's not great because then like I'm forcing everyone for like the next you know month or month and a half or two months until I do my next app update I'm forcing them to download this data that will one week in be out of date and like that seemed like a bad idea to put in my app bundle. But if it's something that didn't change very often, I absolutely would have put it in there. Like, I, it, it, no question, I would have put it in the app bundle. And I might in the future build in like a very small default one just to have some kind of results there, you know, for, for you know, the most popular searches or something like that. But, um, you know, this, that was one consideration right, right there of like, do you bundle it into the app bundle directly or do you download it after installation? And I think that one is a very easy one for me. Like, it, I think you can you can bundle it in only if 
it's either super critical to the app's functionality so that that way, like if someone launches the app and it hasn't downloaded it yet, they can still achieve what they need to achieve in the app. So if it's super critical functionality, it needs to be in the app bundle. Or if it's something that very rarely ever changes, that you can just update it when you issue app updates and it's no big deal to, to have that kind of frequency of updates. Then it makes sense. Build it into the app bundle and avoid all these other all the other concerns. Um, like, I think if it's a feature that very few people use, who cares? As long as it isn't like a massive file, still bundle it in. Um, but if it's something that needs to be updated on a regular basis, that's when you look at downloads. Yeah, and I think too with that, it's I've I've in a variety of different apps, I've done different versions of this, and um, a lot of times what I find too, there's something nice about the app being self-contained that you don't have you avoid a situation you can avoid a situation where someone downloads the app when they have connectivity and then they their first launch if their first launch of the app requires connectivity to do something um it's kind of a bad experience and so too i think it's always even if that initial cache may be something that will get invalidated or will be immediately updated when they when they launch the app it's something that i've done a couple times where i'm trying to make sure that there's almost there's this basic situ there's this basic usefulness that the app can have right out of that that initial download um, that you don't assume that well if they had obviously they had internet connectivity when they downloaded the app of course they're going to have it when the first time they launch it but I don't think you can necessarily rely on that and obviously depending on what the app is that's you know more more or less relevant if it's a like my first app that I ever actually shipped into the App Store, this is over 10 years ago now, was a reference app that showed you um, like cost of, li- cost of living per diem stuff for travelers. And for that one, it's like the app is completely useless if it doesn't have its, its database. And that first version, I shipped it just ahead like a plist file as its database, which sub- subsequently got upgraded to a SQLite database that was shipped with the bundle. But it was one of those things where I wanted to make sure that as long as you got all of the app, it worked. And, you know, that was all you had to, all the connectivity that was required. Um, and also, I think it's something that's, something that always sticks in the back of my mind is that one nice thing about shipping it with the bundle is that you are not, it doesn't require you to be maintaining something else in order for the app to continue to function. Um, so, you know, the, as long as they, they have access to that app bundle, they will be able to use the app in some ways. That it's not if if some point you lose interest in the, the app, it kind of starts to fall away, and you turn off the web server where all of the content was being was being served from, or that cost becomes unsustainable. Um, it's kind of nice in like almost like a like a software preservation perspective or whatever that even several years later. As long as Apple is still a thing that is surveying assets from the App Store, you know, someone could download the app or re-download it from their purchased history, um, and it could still work. Um, so that's just another thing that's kind of nice about bundling it directly into the app itself. Yeah, exactly. Because like, any, like one of the reasons why I did Instant Search was that when I have server issues, like like I did over over the holidays, uh, I previously talked about, it, like if I have server issues search is critical to a podcast app because it's how it's like the first thing people do to add podcasts and then, and it's a very frequent thing to search for new ones and i wanted to make sure that was always going to be fast and even though like if my servers are totally down you can't subscribe to a new podcast so you know i'm not totally immune here but like i at least have like a level of protection here like if there's like spotty connectivity or 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 server issues here i'm giving them a better experience than i otherwise would have yeah, and I think in general that's a great use for this type of 
um, this this type is. I mean, it's, it's essentially what a large what a lot of this kind of data becomes is essentially it's advanced caching. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's different. It's a, it's a more robust version of caching that you might do ahead of time. So you call it like it's pre it's like pre warmed caches, um, but it's things that you could you know eventually download from the internet potentially or that may be part of the normal use of the app is that in your case you know with search like most of their results eventually are going to be coming from the web server but as fast as that might be as optimized as you might make it it's still never going to be as fast as in memory or on device like those are situations that are always going to be better and it's you know it's a dramatic difference in user experience to have it locally there by pre-warming those caches i mean you can sort of get around this sometimes where you know as soon as the app launches it goes off and starts pre-warming its caches or things so that by the time someone goes to the search screen you may have already gotten some of this and so on but it's never going to be you know it's like it's, it's always a tricky a tricky balance to know the timing of that and the resources of that and like having that be ready exactly when you want it to be there we are sponsored this week by Linode. With Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud. And you can get a server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux, Linux distro, resources, and node location. Linode serves their customers with the help of 10 data centers around the globe. And they're about to add more. Mumbai, India, and Toronto, Canada will both have data centers by 2020. Linode also features native SSD storage on all of their servers. They have a 40 gigabit network behind it all, and they use Intel Xeon E5 CPUs. This means you have amazing, fast hardware and networking to serve your customers as fast as possible. And you don't have to worry about overspending, because Linode has designed their pricing tiers to feature hourly billing with the added bonus of a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services, including backup services and node balancers. Linode has fantastic pricing options to suit everyone. The plans start at 1 gig of RAM for just $5 a month, and they offer high memory plans starting with 16 gigs of RAM. And Linode has a special offer for our listeners. Listeners of the show can go to linode.com slash radar and use promo code radar2019 to get $20 towards any Linode plan. Once again, that's linode.com slash radar, promo code radar2019 to get $20 towards a plan. So on the one gig of RAM plan, that could be four months for free. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. So give Linode a try today. Linode.com slash radar, promo code radar2019. Thank you so much to Linode for hosting everything I run on the internet and for sponsoring our show and Relay FM. So what I think would be interesting to kind of walk through now is the from, from you know sort of the spectrum of ways that you can ship code or ship data with your app. Um, and this is, you know, there's a tremendous variety and each of them has different trade-offs that I think are interesting to talk about. And I'll start with the most like, I don't even know, like bare metal silly version, which is you can ship data in code. Um, and this is something that you almost certainly you are doing to some degree, like some amount, obviously there's a certain amount of data in your application, um, irrespective of almost anything in terms of even you could think about like localizable strings is a, is a form of data that is being shipped with your app. Um, but even if it isn't like to quite that straightforward a degree, like you could just have an array of static strings that are like a standard list that is often shown in your application that you have to choose from. Like, for example, in my workout app, Workouts Plus Plus, I have, a, you know, there's a bunch of data that is associated with each of the different workout types. You know, are you walking, running, doing yoga, whatever it is. And a lot of the information about those 
I just store in code. Like I have, you know, sort of lookup tables and things that are just dictionaries that are just static values that I ship in the application. And this approach sort of works well in some ways that it's, it's very straightforward. You know, it doesn't scale well. It doesn't work if you, it works fine for like 20 or 30 values. It doesn't scale well if you have 20 or 30,000 values. Um, you know, it's not something that you would necessarily want to put a huge amount of things into, but can be really straightforward. And it certainly is something that, um, I think we all do at some point is there's a certain amount of data that is just in the code. The downside of course, is that it's in the code. It's not something that you can update unless you update the application. You're tying your data versioning to your code versioning. So like in terms of from a version management perspective, you're tying those two things together, which can not be a great situation. Um, if you are doing this, you know, it, it, to, if you're pushing the limits of this, like Xcode will start to get really grumpy if you are actually like, you know, having, you know, source code files that have, you know, several thousand lines that are all just string literals. Like you could do that, but it probably is going to make your life uncomfortable if, even just from a day-to-day use and you know compile times and opening the file perspective like it's or the thing that often will you know bring source editors to their needs is like trying to do syntax coloring on these big massive oh yeah string files like you'll just see like you'll actually watch the coloring move down the page sometimes <laughs> and it's like like if you ever see that you've gone too far on this like it's appropriate at the small level And it's super helpful because it's super performant. Like these are strings directly in like the code space of the application. Like it's right there. Don't go too crazy with that, but it's certainly something that, um, that is available to you, um, as, as a tool. Um, and I think like the next one up from that, I think is probably where you start to get into serialized data structures that are not shipped in your code, but are, functionally like loaded into memory. So this is where I start to think of like, if you have a plist um, or a JSON blob or something like that, that you are storing, you know, either shipping with the app, like we were talking about, um, or downloading from the internet, you could go either way. But, you know, you have a data structure that you're functionally going to be like, you know, NSRA, you know, uh, in it with contents from URL kind of a thing. And you're going to just immediately slurp it up into memory and, You'll have an in-memory dictionary or an in-memory array, and that's how you're going to access that data. And this, I find, is something that I probably use most often. is It's often it's very flexible um, in terms of it's nice that you, it's you can the data is external to your code, so you're not creating that dependency. Um, it's you know Xcode is perfectly happy to have a resource file in its bundle that could be bigger than you'd actually want to edit there. Um, it's reasonably performant. It's works pretty well for medium size, like small to medium sized data sets. Um, and like, I'm actually in the process right now. I mean, this is relevant for me because I'm working on pedometer plus plus on a time zone feature. And I need to have a list of, you know, popular cities and their time zones. So you can choose time zones from cities. Um, and it's one of those things where it falls into that kind of middle ground where, Ultimately, I'm going to have maybe like 1,800 cities or so. Like, not so many that I feel like I need to go full, like, have, you know, have a database that I can, you know, make SQL queries against. It's not that many, but it's big enough that I need to externalize the data somehow. And so, right now, what I've been doing that seems to work pretty well is I'm just putting it into a plist file and I just load that plist file in whenever the user happens to want to do this search. 
you know, it's, it's slightly big in memory, but not crazy. And it's a, you know, it's an operation that doesn't happen very often. So it isn't something that I'm super worried about, but you can just take that, you know, it's, it's, you're functionally just taking a data structure that you would normally have in memory and you can write it to disk and you can read it from disk. And, you know, you can do the same thing. You can tell a dictionary or an array and say like, you know, save, you know, write to file and it'll, you know, essentially put out a binary P list that you can then relay, you know, reload black back in. Um, or you can go even more extreme and you can use like the, uh, archiving APIs in, you know, in iOS where you can take an arbitrary data structure and be, you know, be rewriting that to disk and reading that in. And then it starts to get a little bit more advanced and a bit more complicated. And you should start starting to think, maybe I want to do this in a database where I'm not the one having to like manage all this really sort of nuanced uh, data management stuff. But that certainly is the, the most extreme version of this is when you start using like the keyed archiving and secure archiving and um, all of those types of things. Yeah, and, and there's a number of trade-offs you have to consider when you're picking between these. So like one of the one of the biggest ones that I think would bite a lot of people uh, kind of unexpectedly is the true memory footprint of having a, one of these simpler solutions like a plist file or, or a JSON file. Um, because not only do you have to consider that like the entire like usually if you're parsing a plist or a json file usually that means the entire contents of that file are going to be loaded into memory it also usually means that they're going to be decoded into different data structures that will end up using more memory in in actual like usage ram in their native structures like ns dictionary ns array and everything that'll use more memory than the size of the file so you really have to be careful if you're doing this to to test, like to actually monitor, like you know, load up your app, watch the memory usage meter in whatever developer tool that you're running it in, you know, instruments or the Xcode window, like in the little like now running screen that shows the CPU memory and stuff. Watch what happens to the memory usage when you load that that data in. It will probably go up by more than you think it will, and you know, so if it's not, if, if 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 it's like you know one meg, who cares, right? If it's twenty megs or fifty megs or hundred megs, you you should start caring. Like at that point, you're that you're you ha- you have a much bigger footprint than you probably should, and that can cause problems in things like getting your app k- k- kicked out of memory, having it maybe crash on older phones that don't want to give you that much memory or can't give you that much memory. Um, you you could start having potential just battery usage issues of just c- having lots of RAM thrashing in and out and everything. So it's important to make sure that you're not going to blow your memory budget by having just one big file. Um, you can start doing a little more custom things. Like, like uh, this is one of the things I hate about JSON, is that there doesn't seem to be what in XML we used to call a SACS parser, which was basically a streaming parser that would like give like call your callbacks on begin tags, end tags, got, got tag contents, etc. And so you could basically stream an XML file through memory without ever loading the whole thing into memory. Um, I don't know of any JSON streaming parsers um but anyway uh you can kind of fake it you can like do some custom work where like you have a file that you write in certain blocks and you have like custom ways of reading it so that each block is itself a smaller piece of json or whatever but that's pretty complicated you know i think once you're getting to those kind of levels you should be looking at it at just a database and this is how i do my search index you know as i mentioned earlier my search index my offline search index is about three and a half megs most of the time um and so it is literally a sqlite file that's all. And and one of the great things about this, as opposed to things like binary plist and everything, not only do you not have to load the whole thing to memory and everything, but it's also it's easier to have server-side tools that generate it. Because, you know, like if you're not using an Apple platform, 
the tools for reading and writing Apple's plist format are weak to you know weak at best um, and and so if you can have something like SQLite or JSON that you can write server side that's great what's great about SQLite is that it is incredibly well optimized like it is it's kind of shocking how fast SQLite is like it, it, it shouldn't be as amazing as it is uh, there's a reason why it is very widespread. Even Apple uses it for a lot of OS stuff. A lot of stuff built into Mac OS and iOS is based on SQLite, including core data. Uh, there's there's very much reasons for that. Um, anyway, so just shipping around a SQLite file, I think, is a very, very good solution. The only major downside to it is it is kind of overkill if you are dealing with a data set that's pretty small. So, you know, if you have like, you know, under a thousand items, you know, in your data set, you probably don't need SQLite for that. Um, and the other thing I would say is it does involve some code overhead that, you know, you have to write, you, you, have, you have to link to the SQLite dialib and you have to actually have SQLite calling functions and, and you might, you know, you could use a wrapper library. Uh, my preferred one for that is FMDB uh, by our friend Gus Mueller. And it's, I use it in Overcast. I use it as much as I can. It's, it's wonderful. Um, you can also use the direct C API, but it's a little cumbersome. So, you know, it's not necessarily uh, the best option for most people. Um, but that's about the only downside is like, yeah, you have to code in support for SQLite. Other than that, I strongly recommend it because one of the other things like, you know, we're talking about memory costs and, and size considerations. But another thing to consider is lookup speed. And if your data set is small, you know, computers are fast. It's not going to matter. You can scan through all of them just by doing like a dumb, you know, string match. Is this the right title? No. Is this the right title? No. <laughs> you know, just scan through the whole set. Um, but when your set becomes large enough where that could be a problem, you actually will see significant gains by having some kind of index structure, like having a, a, a binary tree lookup or something. That's what databases do. So if you create an index on like a title column, you can have way faster lookups of potentially massive data sets and you can look them up basically instantly like i'm if again like look at overcast instant search i am shocked how quickly it's able to pull up results from a you know three and a half meg database that has tens of thousands of entries in it and it's able to pull up entries from a single keystroke basically immediately like it basically takes no time at all and so if you have a big enough data set where that matters you should really just go straight to a database at that point yeah and i think too there's two other things that i think come to mind with databases that make them really nice and i think the first one too is just to point out that you can use core data to create the database that you're going to ultimately ship with the app too and when you set up your your uh your core data context, you can just point that to a file. Like I think you need to copy it into out of your bundle, so it's in your you know so it's in a read write place in the data in user space. But that's a, a trick that I've used a few times where I you know have a version of the app that has a build that builds the you know, essentially is in my case it was pre, uh, pre caching a bunch of data about the various audiobooks in the audiobook catalog for my audiobook app and. You know, it, it builds this core data database, and then I just take the SQLite file that is underlying core data, put that in my bundle. When you first load up, I copy that, you know, that that SQLite file into user space. But then I just point core data to it, and I get all of the affordances and the nicenesses that core data gives you. You don't have to necessarily go down to the low level of using, you know, actual SQLite 
calls for managing it. It can be all kind of managed from that top level in the same way that you might, you know, say if you had a cache that you were, you know, going to be storing data in with core data, if that was something that you wanted to do, you know, you would be doing that through your, through your application. You can kind of still do that and have that file underlying it that's ultimately all core data is. So that's just something to keep in mind. And I think, too, um, the other big advantage that you get whenever you have this kind of sidecar data in a database as opposed to in a file, it becomes much easier and more of a robust situation if you want to make changes to it um, so that if you make it non-static. So if, for example, this is a cache where you are caching results or prefetching results, you know, and, you know, you're making it so that when the user does something, it's instantaneous, but then it's going to fetch some more results later. Um, you could potentially just start adding those into this database file. And maybe it starts off being a small, a small file, but over time it grows. And like, that's what this does well with, you know, like a database is great for that kind of thing. You just insert more data into it and it sort of scales nice and with a controlled reuse usage pattern and performance, you know, sort of expectation there. Whereas if you were doing something with a, you know, with a P list, say, you could, you know, add in, you, you read the P list into memory, you add some items to it, you could write it back out to memory, but that starts to very quickly start to get really cumbersome and awkward, and you have to deal with all kinds of consistency issues. What happens if you know the, the app was killed halfway through a write, and you can write it atomically, but hopefully it works? And like a lot of these things are completely handled by SQLite. That it's doing all the clever checkpointing and management and cons- consistency stuff that it's nice to not have to think about. Um, so those are two things that I definitely want to mention with databases where they can be super flexible. And also probably third is just to keep in mind that it's entirely reasonable and not even like, a, there's not a tremendous overhead for this to access multiple databases from your application concurrently, um, which I think is, I guess, what you do in Overcast, right? Where you have a search database oh, sure. that is doing this stuff and you also have the actual app database that is actually storing you know, the user's information. And it's perfectly reasonable to do that. And you could have as many of them as made sense. And that could really give you cleanliness in terms of both your code and the, you know, the actual creation of this data that they could be coming from different systems. You don't have to sort of throw it all into one giant database that you then have to manage. Oh yeah, exactly. One of the thing I wanted to touch on too is if you if you're building if you're building in like some kind of source of data, um, go back and listen to the um, the episode that I talked about building my original search feature on Overcast and like how to build a search engine because I wanted to emphasize a point that I went over there, which is like make sure you're sourcing your data in a responsible way. You really you have to see like if you're getting, for example, you, you know you're talking about getting a list of cities uh, and what time zone they're in. You have to make sure if you get this list, first of all, like are you legally allowed to copy this and put it into your app or is it copyrighted and you know you could get yourself into trouble make sure that you can that you have the legal right to embed this in your app make sure that it is from a good source that you probably have like a good and complete and correct data set and make sure you have some way to update it easily in the future if it's the kind of if, if it's data where like it has the nature where it will change over time so like you know a list of major cities probably doesn't need to change that frequently but you probably should update it like at least once a year and so like you know it's worth like considering how often will this data need to be updated can i build some kind of automated system for that do i have any kind of reliable source for where i can get this list and as much as possible automate that and build that build that in up front so you don't have to like get caught off guard later yeah and i think too along those lines is also just making sure that yeah that you are 
you understand where the data comes from. I think it's with certain types of things, it's easy to kind of just, oh, I found this thing on the, I found this thing on the internet and I downloaded it and it seems like it has the right data in it. And it's like, if both from a copyright perspective, that could be problematic, but even just from a, in six months, if you need to update it or people start reporting problems or whatever it is, like having a sense of the origin of the data and where it's coming from. If it's, you know, a lot of these, like say you're working with something that's using like OpenStreetMap status as set or something like that. Like at least you know, okay, where it's coming from. And hopefully you have some kind of script that can download the data that you're interested in and process it and then generate the thing that you need for your application. Like having a end-to-end solution there where it isn't just like you found somebody who did have a script that pulled in the data and did something, and then you're bundling that. Like You're just setting yourself up for pain in the future where something's going to change, some requirement's going to change, or you're going to want to add a field to that, and then suddenly it's be- rather than being a relatively straightforward thing, it's this big, massive project. project. So, yeah, it's like be very thoughtful about wh- where you're getting th- this, kind of a da- this kind of data and just you know being aware that it should be something that you have good understanding of that in general, you want to be sure about that. You know, you're sending any data that you're including in your application, like you're, you're taking responsibility for it. So if there is anything that in it that is potentially controversial or questionable, you have to be aware of it. Don't just like take it and blindly use it. Yeah. And make sure what you're using is legal. Yes. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and we will talk to you next week. Bye.